award-winning Tennessee Wildcast is on the air with the latest on hunting, fishing, boating, wildlife watching, and all things outdoors. Make welcome your host, drummer and outdoor expert novice, Jason Harmon. All right. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Tennessee Wildcast. Uh, it's going to be a fun show for you today. Uh, we are still uh, quarantined and trying to bring Wildcast to you via Zoom. And it's been working out so far, and we appreciate y'all uh, tuning in and, and listening. Uh, thanks for tuning in on, on the podcast side of things as well. But um, we're happy to have um, some uh, real cool folks with us today. And as always, Miss Mimi Barnes helps me co-host. She's a regional communications coordinator in uh, on the plateau, and and uh, she kind of pulled this together and excited about this show. Uh, it's all about birds in Tennessee, migration and bird watching, uh, injured and orphaned wildlife, and what TWRA does uh, and doesn't do and with these different things. And we're going to cover it, but we have Dr. Aborn, Dr. David Aborn. He's associate professor of biology, geology, and, and environmental sciences at UT Chattanooga. And then Captain Walter Cook, he's our TWRA captive wildlife coordinator. And we're glad to have everyone. So thank you all for being here. Thank you. That was a mouthful. Mimi, thanks for pulling this together. I know they both have long titles, uh, but what great guests. And it's, you know, despite what's going on in the world with the tragedy in Chattanooga and COVID-19, uh, it is a beautiful time of year. And we're definitely outside a lot more in Tennessee. We're seeing folks out across the state enjoying hunting, morale uh, picking and uh, bird watching and all, all just wildlife watching out their windows even. Um, so it's a it's a great time. Babies are going to be born. We already have baby rabbits. Yeah. Um, so it's a great time to have both guests on. And uh, David and Walter, I'm really grateful for your time today. Sid, glad, glad to be here. Yes, happy to be here. So let's just kick it off by meeting everybody. Dr. Aborn, will you introduce yourself? Uh, we know you're at UTC and, and that sort of thing, but what brought you there? And tell us a, bit, a little bit about your back. Well, uh, I've been at uh, UTC for uh, 20 years. Um, I have uh, bachelor's and master's degrees in zoology from Clemson University. Go Tigers. Um, <laughs> and my uh, PhD is from the University of Southern Mississippi. And um, after I graduated from uh, Southern Miss, uh, I got a two-year uh, teaching position at Baylor University in Texas. Uh, that was followed by a one-year research position at the Archbold Biological Station in Florida. And then uh, I got the, uh, the opportunity to come up uh, to UTC and uh, I've been here, uh, been here ever since. It's been, it's been really good. It's a, uh, a nice mid-sized university. I have a really nice balance between uh, the two things I really enjoy, the teaching and the research. And it's just a, a really nice area. Um, lots to do, lots of opportunities. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Walter, what about, what about you? You've been uh, with the agency for a while. Give us a little bit of, bit, bit of your background. Well, I've been with the agency for, uh, I hate to age myself, but uh, 32 years as, as, a, as a wildlife officer. And, and about 28 years ago, when the captive wildlife law was passed and they started a project and I ended up being the first project uh, leader. Um, 
and have done that ever since. And I've watched things go from situations involving captive wildlife, from dangerous wildlife to rehabilitation to other things. I've seen it go from a lot of problems to now it's considered one of the model programs in the state. It's used as a model for other states to address everything from concerns from, you know, private possession of dangerous wildlife, which we don't allow, um, to how to set up a wildlife rehabilitation program that functions and works well for the rehabilitators as well as the public. So I've been very happy with the progress we've made and that's largely in due to the people of the agency that work on it, our field officers and all of our staff that handles all the paperwork and the uh, permits along with the permittees and we have all the different permittees that we have across the state. Uh, they're very anxious and more than happy to uh, follow the rules, do what we need them to do, and everybody seems to work together. And awesome. I'm very pleased with the program and where it's at. And I'm just a big thanks to everybody, the permittees and agency personnel that made it what it is. Great. Yeah. Uh, we'll start a little bit of questioning um, with you, David, um, to turn it back. We're going to cover uh, a little bit about birds out there right now. And, and I'll skip around on the questioning. I'm going to start off with the question, um, neotropical migrant. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a term we're used to throwing around. We're used to hearing neotropical migrant. Um, but it is such a beautiful time of year. I know uh, you see some of my posts on Facebook. I see yours um, about what we're seeing in our yards, what we're hearing. And you do some banding. Uh, so would you define neotropical migrant for us and then... Um, Tell us a little bit about what's going on out there right now with birds. Sure. Uh, well, uh, the, the neotropics are the, the new world tropics, so the, the tropical regions of uh, Central and South America. And so a neotropical migrant is one that migrates from the neotropics up to the, the temperate areas of North America to breed. And then after the breeding season's over, they return back to the, uh, uh, the, the neotropics for the non-breeding season. Uh, a lot of people think that those, those migrants, you know, the, uh, the warblers, thrushes, tanagers, orioles, and so forth, you know, we, we tend to think of them as being, you know, our birds, uh, but actually many of them are, uh, are tropical birds. So they're, they're actually going back home and they come up here to take advantage of the, uh, uh, the big summer abundance of insects that, that we have. And there's also uh, uh, less nest predation up here in the in the temperate regions than down in the in the tropics, so they're they're taking advantage of those those better breeding conditions up here, and then returning uh, back home to the to the tropics uh, once breeding is finished. So where are we with migration, uh, David? I know that you banned birds, so if you could talk a little bit about banding, and then where are we with migration of birds? I'm starting to hear bird song. Uh, well, have been hearing birdsong in my yard for a while, and um, what should folks be expecting with neotropical migrants? 
Okay, yeah, we're we're about to head into the uh, the peak of spring migration in Tennessee. Uh, so it, it peaks around uh, the state about the third or fourth week of April. So we're, we're right around the peak in terms of the the numbers of birds and the numbers of different species that uh, that we'll be seeing. Um, migration usually gets started around the last week of March or so, uh, and then pretty much uh, wraps up about middle, the middle of, of May. Uh, so we're, we're just about into the peak. We're starting to see some of the thrushes come in, like wood thrushes, blue-winged warblers, Swainson's thrushes, gray-cheek thrushes, American red starts, black pole warblers, yellow-billed cuckoo should be coming in. So there's there's quite a lot of, of things yet to uh, yet to arrive. Um, as far as the, the banding goes, I am a, a permitted uh, bander. And what that means is that I put on uh, small aluminum bands on the legs of birds and these bands have individual numbers on them and so it's like putting a little name tag on a bird and so um, uh, one of the things that I'm that I'm doing with the banding is looking at whether or not our urban green spaces are suitable for uh, places for birds during migration uh, because uh, I like to say birds don't just uh, say beam me up Scotty and they're magically transported from you know one place to the next uh, they they have to stop along the way and rest and refuel and you know escape bad weather etc and so you can imagine uh, a migrant uh, flying over an urban area and seeing, you know, just this uh, sea of asphalt and glass and concrete, uh, and then seeing this patch of green and thinking, oh, you know, that's where I want to go. Uh, but when you start factoring in things like um, uh, exotic plant species, uh, urban predators, pesticides, and so forth, maybe our urban green spaces aren't the best places for uh, migrants to be uh, stopping over during their journey, and by uh, banding them, I'm allowed. Uh, I'm able to keep track of, uh, you know, are, are there? How is their body condition changing? Um, uh, how long are they staying in the area, and things of that nature? Why should we care about habitat where these neotropical migrants are flying to? What What does it matter to us? Well, I, I mean, birds provide a number of uh, important services in terms of pest control, uh, pollination, uh, economics. I, I mean, uh, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service does studies periodically on the economic impact of different outdoor recreational activities, and bird watching has a tremendous uh, economic impact. Um, uh, you know, I mean, people pay lots of money in terms of equipment, travel, lodging, food, etc., to to go places and see birds. You know, just look at how many people come out to the Sandhill Crane Festival every year. Um, and and I did a, a survey one time to. Um, look at the economic impact of that survey and just for the one weekend of that of that uh, festival um, 
it, it generates about a hundred thousand uh, dollars, you know, from people uh, again uh, staying in hotels, uh, shopping, uh, you know, at various places over the weekend, going to see the the um, other sites around Chattanooga, you know, other than the Crane Festival, etc. Et so, uh, birds are very very important, and with migration. Uh, we, we have to look at the whole picture. You know, we can't just focus on where they're breeding. We can't just focus on where they're wintering. We can't just focus on the migration route because we're finding it's all connected. This whole phenomenon is, is termed migratory connectivity. And uh, that, that's become a, a very, very important focus in uh, the conservation and management of migratory birds. Yeah, the world seems like a smaller place when you're talking in terms of bird migration. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that, uh, uh, that I really uh, find fascinating about migration. I mean, I mean, there are so many different aspects to migration that uh, are just uh, astounding. And, um, you know, that, that ability to connect people in different parts of the world is, is one of those aspects. Um, so I'll take the opportunity really quickly, David, to say thank you for your support with the Sandhill Crane Festival. You've done crane research in the past. Um, I know that, and those, that science means a lot to TWRA. We are a science-based agency um, and trying to make science-based decisions, along with uh, listening to what our customers want. Um, that's the job of our commission. That's a tough job. Um, but I, I want to say I appreciate your support every year at the Sandhill Crane Festival. You come, set up a scope, share your expertise with our guests. I really appreciate that. Well, um, I'm happy to happy to help out. You know, I mean, it's it's an important organization, and you know, anything I can do to uh, to help you guys out. You know, if there's information that you need, if if there's research that can be done, then you know, I'm I'm happy to help out as best I can. Thank you. Um, so uh, I want to switch gears just uh, slightly. You know, we hear about window strikes this time of year from um, folks out throughout Tennessee. And, uh, you know, our yards are greening up. What, what are some of the things that Tennesseans can do um, and outside of Tennessee? As we have a lot of followers, Jason, I know yeah. that. But, but what can folks do to better the habitat in their yards? Um, well, um, uh, variety is the spice of life. So, you know, having a variety of different tree and shrub species uh, is going to help because that's going to attract a variety of insects, produce a variety of fruits and so forth. Um, definitely use native vegetation if at all, all possible. Um, uh, providing water. Uh, is going to be important too, you know, especially when it gets hot. Uh, birds and other wildlife, you know, need need water just as much as they need food. So, uh, uh, you know, if you can provide a, a source of water, that's going to be uh, very helpful. Um, 
making sure that your windows reducing the the reflectivity of the windows because that's that's what's happening with with the bird strikes is the windows are reflecting the vegetation and the sky and they think that they've got you know clear sailing and they they smack into the windows so um if you can uh you know put up curtains or screens or uh, there are some some films that you can put over your windows uh, to help reduce the the reflectivity uh, of the window will will help reduce those uh, uh, window casualties thank you that's great um, I want to move on uh, I'm watching the time Jason <laughs> I want to move on Wally because we do have birds that strike windows um, TWRA then gets those phone calls uh, we're not a rehab facility. We don't have veterinarians on staff. We don't have a place to house animals. But yet, because our name includes wildlife, we receive those phone calls. So I want to turn to you, Walter, uh, and just talk a little bit about what happens when we do get one of those window strikes um, or other injured or seemingly orphaned, note I said seemingly orphaned wildlife. Um, so, Walter, uh, what should folks do if they find an injured or orphaned wild animal? Well, one thing they can do is that um, they can go to our website and, and just Google Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency. Click on the top bar of law enforcement and you will have drop downs and one of them is wildlife rehabilitation. And if they click on that, there'll be a directory of all our rehab facilities across the state by county. Um, just to give you a reference for anybody that accesses the website, Region 1 is West Tennessee, Region 2 is Middle Tennessee, Region 3 is from Chattanooga up through the Plateau, and then, of course, Region 4 is the uh, eastern part of our state. So their phone numbers are there, and this is very important. You encounter something, it's always a good idea to call a local rehabber for consult. Uh, because a lot of times these animals are not orphaned, they're just doing what they're supposed to do, or there's things that can be done to like re-nest uh, young birds. Also, you have to bear in mind, if you do take an animal into possession, um, take it into your home or around your children or your pets, there's always a possibility that um, there could be a uh, disease side of the issue. Mm. Not very common, but still that, that threat is there. So it's really important to make that call and call the rehabber and the wildlife rehabilitator and go through what you've got going on. And they do a great job. Uh, you know, rule of thumb is nine out of 10 phone calls do not result in a case that's going to be brought in. And these people are, we, they are required to have extensive experience prior to getting the permit. As you said, we don't have a rehabilitator, but all wildlife rehabilitators have to have a veterinarian of record on call with them and have vet services provided by rule. So we have a very comprehensive program. These people are very talented at what they do. They're very good at working with the public. Uh, we have, and I, I will put this up against any other state, in the union, we absolutely have the best people doing this in the country. And give them a call if you encounter something, and they can they will help you immensely. What yeah, if I people know. want to take that animal into their home and keep it? We get a lot of phone calls. People message us with photographs of someone that's 
picked up a box turtle from the woods and wants to keep it as a pet? Well, the thing about there is, is, you know, we talk about there's always a potential of disease transmission to pets, family members, friends. Also, that animal, and let's just use the box turtle for an example. That animal's out there doing what it's supposed to do. Um, and as Dr. Arbarn says, there's animals have services. In the case of a box turtle, they eat different um, plants, but they move the seeds and reestablish those plants in other places through their digestive tract. So when you remove that animal, you're removing an animal that's out there actually helping the ecosystem. Plus, these are long-lived animals. I mean, uh, we've got records, you know, 100 years plus. So you're taking that animal into possession. What are you going to do as time goes on? And number two, why, why would you want to remove an animal from the wild that's doing what it's supposed to do? Why not just enjoy seeing it and leave it be? And it's like um, you wouldn't want to take something away from where it's supposed to be. The other point is, you know, we do see things on Facebook. We do monitor Facebook just to let everybody know. We make a lot of contacts, you know, daily. And we have some people that work for the agency uh, that are really good at going through and finding locations and, and of people on Facebook. If they take an animal in, the, num the biggest problem is they could be imprinting that animal and it can never go back to the wild, or it would if it went to a rehabilitator or had been left alone. Mm -hmm. So it's imprinted. And that is not fair to the animal, and that doesn't serve any real good purpose for ecosystem. In other words, it doesn't benefit wildlife as a whole. So, And therefore, it's illegal. And it is illegal, but and that's the reason it is illegal. There's a lot of reasons why. And we want people to understand that the wildlife's not out. The wildlife is a public trust. It belongs to everyone. And it's not not fair to the animal and not fair to the people of the state for someone to remove basically their property and make it their own. And if I could also jump in real quick, um, a lot of people don't know how to care for these animals. You know, they'll feed them things that are inappropriate. Uh, you know, I know I heard from, from the rehabbers, they'll get a baby bird that someone tried to feed milk. Well, mm. you know, birds don't drink milk, um, you know, and even mammals, you know, someone will have a, a squirrel or something that they'll feed uh, cow's milk. Well, a cow's milk is different from squirrel milk. And you can, you know, you don't know, if you don't know what you're doing, you can do more harm than, than good. And so, you know, if, if people truly want to help the wildlife, the, the best thing they can do is get it to the people who, who have the knowledge and the, and the training to, to take care of it. That's, well, absolutely, that's absolutely true. And that's a very good point. And these people are trained and they're vetted out and they know what they're doing. They have the proper material. They have access to, um, all types of resources to help them with that. A lot of them are veterinarians. Some of them are vet techs and they've had extensive experience working with animals. So, and that is, that's, that's a very good point. And that's something people need to be mindful of. You may think you're helping in reality, you're not. And uh, you, you could, as 
Dr. Arborn said, you could be doing more damage than good. We're going to see some fawns, start seeing fawns here nearby, and you may think it's been orphaned, but it, more than likely, probably not, right, Wally? Well, that is correct. What folks have to understand, the the how this works is, is a doe will have a fawn, and it doesn't have smell. It has spots, which makes it camouflage. So the fawn will nurse and then the doe will go off somewhere else to feed or to rest away from her fawn. That way predators don't zero in on her fawn. They're paying attention to her. So they will come back periodically through the day, most of the time at night, and let the fawn feed. And you will find that people will find fawns. They're perfectly fine. They'll be laying there. They need to be left alone. Or as they get older, they may be up walking around the edge of hay fields or people's yards. And, you know, they'll say, well, there's no doe. There's no doe. And I'm like, yes, there is a doe. Well, this little, little deer's been out here for three days. I said, trust me, if there was no doe, the deer would still not be there after three days. Mm -hmm. So it's really important. And unfortunately, um, a lot of calls we get, this is the case. They're not orphaned. And rehabbers that rehab whitetail deer, one of the keys is there is a confirmation that the doe has been killed, that, that there is reason to believe that the fawn's mother is not there anymore. So um, the best thing to do, if you find one, appreciate it and move on because all you're doing is drawing attention to that animal so predators can find it. So, um, you know, do the deer a favor and, and help everybody out and just leave it be where it's at. Well, we've Great covered, advice. yeah, we've, we've covered a lot here. I don't know if there's any final comments or things we have missed. We want to touch on real quick. We're going to run out of time, but uh, Mimi, thanks for pulling us together. Any, any further comments or anything y'all want to discuss? Make sure we public knows about. Um, I just appreciate the opportunity to get that information out and we appreciate the public's interest in wildlife and wanting to help wildlife. And again, we really appreciate our wildlife rehabilitators in the state to do a great job, a great service for the agency and the public and all of our personnel that works with them and various things. And, and they've really, the permittees and a lot of people in the agency has really made our rehab program the model for the country that it is today. And I would just like to uh, give a shout out um, if anyone is interested in learning more about uh, birds, then uh, they should uh, check out the Tennessee Ornithological Society. Uh, that's the, the state birding uh, organization. There are chapters all over the state. They, they organize field trips. They have uh, speakers at, at their monthly meetings. Uh, and it's just a, a really great way to um, learn about uh, learn about birds you don't have to be uh, an expert it's a you know there's no better way to get started than by going out with people who know um, so so definitely if you're interested in learning more about uh, birds then you can go to the uh, Tennessee Ornithological Society website and uh, see what the uh, the closest chapter is to you and uh, contact them about what they're uh, uh, what they're up to. Awesome. And, and I'd like to add one final thing. Um, it is awesome to work with 
uh, people within the agency, like you, Jason, and you, Walter, that care so much about wildlife, and, and David, uh, the partners we have outside this agency, uh, keep us going. Uh, it makes wildlife better. So um, thank you all for your dedication to wildlife. It gives me the opportunity to, um, to say thank you. Thank, thank you, you, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, guys, we appreciate everybody being on, uh, guys and gals. And uh, we uh, hope you all enjoyed this edition of Wildcast. Hope you all keep coming back, keep watching, keep tuning in, keep listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Stay connected with TWRA by visiting our website at tnwildlife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, it's all about Tennessee wildlife. It's what we do. Tennessee Wildcast will be on the air again next week. We'll see you then.